Welcome to Indoor Voices, presented by Millicare Floor and Textile Care. Join us as we explore the great indoors and talk to experts about how to improve our indoor environments. All right, folks, thank you so much for joining us for another Indoor Voices. Today we have with us Steve Ashkin, who a lot of people term as the father of green cleaning. If an organization has been tied to green cleaning, Steve Ashkin has probably had his name tied to it in some way, shape, or form. And we're going to try and draw out all of his experience in creating and popularizing green cleaning today. So, Steve, thanks so much for, for coming on with us. Well, thank you, Brian. It's my pleasure to be here. Once again, a lot of folks out there understand the concept of green cleaning, right? And since you're the father of green cleaning, I thought I'd start with a question like, what is green cleaning? And why should it matter to the everyday person? Well, let me start by sort of going back 20 years. How's that? And, you know, if we look at just one area of cleaning products, cleaning chemicals, you know, 20 years ago, we were formulating them using formaldehyde as a preservative and using 2-butoxyethanol as a solvent and, you know, using surfactants that you know, mimicked hormones, you know, alkyl phenol with oxalates. And the three examples that I just gave, um, the ingredients worked. They, they really effectively did their job. But as time went on, we realized formaldehyde is a known carcinogen. And frankly, there are other preservatives that can be used. So why use something we know to be carcinogenic? We learned that 2-butoxyethanol was a solvent that was absorbed easily through the skin. So when we use it in our spray and wipe cleaners, you know, people would get it on them and it'd be absorbed through the skin and it's, a, it's an organ toxicant. It attacks our, res, our reproductive systems and what have you. You know, our surfactants, some of them, when we wash them down the drain, they're not actually taken out by municipal treatment works and their endocrine modifiers. And so the question became, well, why, right? Why, why do we do those things? Especially in an industry that's as mature as the cleaning industry, over the past 20 years, we figured out how to replace those things with safer alternatives. So what green cleaning is, is effective products or effective processes that reduce negative impacts on human health and the environment compared to other options that are available to us. And in many respects, all green cleaning is, is looking at innovations, right? Cleaning industry, the carpet care industry, the stone floor care industry. We've all come up with amazing innovations. But the innovation in this case, from a green perspective, is not an innovation that makes it work faster or an innovation that makes it cheaper or an innovation that gives us 12 more fragrances of the same product. Green cleaning is an innovation that reduces impacts on health and the environment. So to me, that's what really is driving it. It's because it's available. It's because we really can do it. It's because it really does make a difference, especially for our frontline workers who have occupational exposures to these products. Um, it makes sense. It rewards manufacturers who invested in better technologies. It helps companies differentiate themselves from their competition. And to me, it's a real win-win. So to me, um, green cleaning is simple, simply cleaning 
that um, effective cleaning that reduces health and environmental impacts compared to traditional cleaning options. Steve, there's a bunch of passion that like came out from your, your answer there. And so I've got maybe a, a simple question. Why call it green cleaning? Why not call it blue cleaning or pure cleaning? You know, in the early 90s, when I started working on this stuff, and I was really taken by some of the researchers, such as Dr. Michael Berry and Dr. Gene Cole, who is doing amazing work from EPA and others to really look at the effect of missing cleaning. And the question that I started asking was, man, this is just brilliant. These guys have figured out how important effective cleaning is. But why isn't anyone doing it? I didn't see any laws, I didn't see any regulations, I didn't see any standards, I didn't fundamentally see anything that really changed. So what I set out to do was to figure out how do we actually drive change and how do we use the science to make our industry better and to make our building occupants healthier, et cetera, et cetera. So the reason we came up with the name Green was because at that same time, there were organizations like the US Green Building Council that was being launched. And what was unique about the U.S. Green Building Council was their target audience were building owners. And just the way the marketplace works, you know, if we can change the demand side of the market, the suppliers will meet that demand. And so we called it green cleaning because we targeted those building owners that already had a sensitivity to green-related issues, to health-related issues. And we were going to build this more effective cleaning process using better products, better chemicals, better paper, pet, you know, less impactful plastic materials, et cetera, et cetera, targeting an audience that would actually become the early adopters and purchasers for the people who did it. So that's really why we called it green. And candidly, I don't really care what you call it, right? We can call it orange, we can call it polka dot, we can call it blue. It doesn't matter what the name is, but we intentionally called it green only because it fit with the expectations of our early target adopters. And it's really just that simple. No, that's awesome. And I like I like that, you know, saying where you guys targeted as far as those building owners that had this as a priority. Now, I know in talking to you um, that green cleaning, a lot of times, uh, so many words are devoted to the actual build, building occupant, but green cleaning actually extends to the unseen personnel as well, correct? Could you expound a little bit? You know, if we're really thinking about how to reduce risks and harm to people, you know, we spend, especially during COVID, right, we spend so much time thinking about the occupants in the buildings. But from a cleaning perspective, you know, our frontline workers are using these products eight hours a day. And their exposure is vastly more significant than the building occupants. So um, while, and I hate to say this, I often think that Far too many people in our society don't care about our janitors, our custodians, our frontline cleaners, right? They're invisible, but I do. I, I'm sorry, I sincerely do care about them. And so while we couldn't really promote this as, gee, we're going to take care of our frontline workers because the marketplace didn't care, 
right? They cared about the occupants, right? A building owner cares about the people who worked in their building. So the, the, while my personal agenda was really to make it better for the workers, the way to accomplish that was to show our customers, the building owners, why this was better for the people they cared about. And then the net result nonetheless would be, we're also making it safer and better for our workers. No, I love it. And I'm, and I'm gonna stay on that question for just a second because back in 2020, there was a knee-jerk reaction in the cleaning industry to just replace a lot of cleaners with disinfectants. What was, what was your response? Well, well, give us some of your thoughts as to kind of what the industry did back, back in March of 2020. Well, l- let's be very honest about what happened in March of 2020, which was, oh my God, you know, our worst fears may be happening. But I remember, you know, watching all the zombie movies, you know, where the whole world is being overtaken by this virus that's, you know, whatever, right? And we didn't know what to do. There was little information coming out. We didn't know what was happening. We didn't know how serious it was. We didn't know how the disease trans was transmitted. We didn't know anything. So let's face it, we were afraid people were dying. So, you know, people were implementing whatever strategies, public health strategies that we knew that worked. And obviously we had experience from Ebola and, you know, some of these other, you know, diseases. So it wasn't surprising that, man, let's pull out all stops. We're going to disinfect everything. We're going to put people in moon suits and give them electrostatic sprayers. And we're going to fog everything. And we're going to fog exteriors of the buildings. We're, you know, we did everything. And, but at the time, we just had to try, right? When the building's on fire, you know, we just got to put it out. Um, as time went on and we got more data, if you really look at what CDC said and relative to cleaning, they really have not changed their requirements since probably the summer, which basically says cleaning is really important. Um, disinfecting, um, not so much. And don't misunderstand, I'm not trying to suggest we can't use cleaning products and stuff like that. Disinfectants are one small part of all the chemicals, tools that we have available in cleaning and maintaining our buildings. So the question to me then became, well, and this is based on CDC recommendations, that basically we need to clean once a day, but do it thoroughly. And that was the rub, but we just didn't know any better. And, you know, I have clients and they increase their frequencies of cleaning four or five fold because they just needed to respond to make sure their occupants felt safe. But now we're just learning more. And as it's going on, cleaning is important. Thorough cleaning, incredibly important. Disinfecting, we need to be smart about it, right? It's a toxic chemical by definition because it's designed to kill living organisms or to keep them from reproducing. They are serious chemicals. So focusing on the things that matter, because candidly, cleaning removes soils, it removes pathogens from a surface, 
And I don't really care whether it removes those, those soils and pathogens when they're alive or dead. I just want them off the surface because when they're off the surface, we reduce the risk of harm to the occupants and others, whether they're gonna inhale it or they're gonna touch the surface. So cleaning, really important, disinfecting, let's get smart about it. No, I think that's perfect. And you're speaking my language as a guy who tries to implement sustainable cleaning practices. Um, so let's get back to some of these ideas of green. And you've taken us through a little bit of the USGBC, um, kind of you know where the heart of green cleaning fits in. But some of our listeners are probably wondering where maybe the Green Seal organization fits in. How do they factor into this green initiative? The value of a green seal or a UL Eco logo or the Safer Choice program is that little dot, that seal of approval makes it easy for purchasers to buy products with confidence. Because in addition to the long list of all the ingredients it can have, all the testing on health and environmental stuff, there's also performance requirements in there too. So that purchasers can have confidence that not only it met all the green requirements, but it also performed well and an independent third party actually looked at it. So Green Seal and the other certification programs have helped accelerate the adoption of green products into the marketplace. I love it because Green Seal is the one that maybe a lot of people know and is maybe a little bit more popular, but you threw out um, Safer Choice as well. And just from this initial project came a lot of different third party certifications. So from listening to you speak, um, it seems that USGBC and LEED really took off in kind of the 90s and then maybe early 2000. What's your take on some of the emerging healthy building movements like well building and fit well? So first of all, I, I like them all and candidly, I'm involved with all of them. So um, thank you. You know, candidly, USGBC is their family to me. I'm a founding member of the council. I actually a former uh, national board of directors member, um, worked on the first lead for new construction project and helped them launch the operations and maintenance program, right? Originally called lead for existing buildings. So I, I love the Oscreen Building Council. And as a matter of fact, we're working right now to update the cleaning credits in there. So I love lead. And LEED has become the roadmap to green cleaning, right? Because it doesn't just talk about chemicals, but addresses paper product, toilet paper and paper towels. Because we forget that there's billions of pounds of paper products used in our buildings. So how we buy greener options has huge environmental impacts. We use billions of garbage bags, plastic garbage bags. So buildings have real abilities to change markets and the environmental impacts associated with that. So LEED has done a great job helping us with that. Obviously there's become some competitors for LEED. Um, I have to say my favorite, if I can say it like that, is the International Well Building Institute's Well Program. Um, for those of you listening in, I encourage you to really check it out. You know, while LEED has globally about 130,000 certified buildings, well, I think has around 6,000, 7,000. So it's a new kid on the block, but much smaller. Um, but the issue of wellness 
I think is a really important issue. And if you haven't seen their television commercial, you know, come on, when you can get Lady Gaga and you can get Robert De Niro and Michael Jordan, the actor, and, you know, we can get people like this to promote those kind of things. Regular people will pay attention. So I think the well program really focused on wellness is really an up, or up and coming program. Um, the FitWell program is tied to some CDC stuff. Um, I think it's interesting, but very minor uptake yet. Um, but it is something to consider. And frankly, there's a number of other ones out there as well, the BIT program and others. But one of the things that we've done, because I mentioned that I've worked on all of these, I've tried to make the requirements on cleaning consistent for all of them. And I did that so it didn't become a barrier. We wanted to eliminate confusion in the marketplace. So, you know, we didn't want chemical manufacturers to have to develop one cleaning product for lead and a separate one for well and a third one for fit well, but to make it so that they all work and create enough demand that we really can continue to innovate around making safer products for, you know, protecting people and the environment. I love that this concept of green cleaning goes way beyond just cleaners, right? Because you mentioned that in those standards, there's a lot of sustainable practices that can keep down the amount of, um, I guess you could say, uh, refuse that buildings put out, right? And if we can do that, we can control that, we can really change a lot of things. So with this next question, I might even, I might, I'm going to try and draw out some more passion from you. I might even hit a hot button. When stakeholders are confronted with potential costs that are associated with a healthy building program like LEED or, or well certifications, a lot of times a hard no ensues because of those costs. What's, what's your response to this? Well, thank you. I, I have a couple of responses. The first one is, if you were interviewing me 20 years ago, and you'd say, well, you know, green products cost more or they don't work. And we still hear those objections today. But, you know, as someone who is formulating those products 20 years ago, the fact is they did cost more and or they didn't work very well. Now, I work for a mid-sized manufacturer at that time. And, for example, the surfactants that we bought, you know, the detergent in a cleaner the company I work for, we would buy those surfactants by the railroad car load. So 80,000 pounds at a time. When we started making and selling our green product line, we would buy those detergents, those surfactants, by a five-gallon pail or a 55-gallon drum. So just the economies of scale had huge impacts on the cost of the materials. And plus, since we weren't selling very much, all the overhead, right? The R&D time and the marketing time and developing sales training and you know process training stuff, all of those costs were amortized over a much smaller number of units that were sold. So yeah, 20 years ago, the products really did cost more or to make them cost effective, we just would add more water, right? We'd take out all the active ingredients so they don't work right. Anyway, the reason I'm mentioning that is that was 20 years ago. Today, in most product categories, that is not the problem, right? The manufacturers, they're buying much more of the green materials. 
The green suppliers have more competition. I'm talking about the ingredient suppliers. So their costs have come down. You know, we're selling more, so we're amortizing the costs over more units. Today, they're very cost competitive in most of the product categories um, that we work with. So today, that's one of the things that I'm going to say is, from a product perspective, generally, I, I think of the products as being cost neutral. Now, with having said that, I think cleaning, green cleaning, or any kind of cleaning has to be effective. And the problem is, oftentimes it's not. We measure the success of cleaning by appearances, or more importantly, by how many complaints the facility manager gets from the occupants that there's no toilet paper in the bathroom. Right? There's no quantitative objective measure of cleaning. So there has been this incredible race to the bottom. The cheapest price gets the bid. So to me, if we want to actually get back to effective cleaning, building owners in many cases are going to have to pay more because our workers can't de deliver effective, thorough cleaning if they're cleaning 50,000 square feet in a day. There's no way. And let's remember that the average American home is only 2,300 square feet. So we're like asking our workers to clean like a single person to clean 20 houses in a day. You can imagine how thorough it can be. So green cleaning may cost more, but not because it's green. It's because we actually want to clean to protect people's health. And the way to do that is to be more thorough. So if a building owner wants thorough cleaning, they're going to have to pay for it. It's not that we don't know how to do it. They got to pay for it. If you want a steak, pay for a steak. If you want a burger at a fast food joint for $3, that's okay, but you're not going to get a good steak for $3. And that's the thing that we have to educate the market about. If appearances is all you want, yeah, we'll pull the trash and we'll make sure the glass on the entryway door is clean. If you want to clean for health, we got to make sure that our workers have the time to do the job. And that's what we have to sell to our customers. What do they want? They want a healthy building? You got to pay for it. They just care about what it looks like? okay, the cheapest bid will do it. Anyone can figure out how to empty the garbage every day. I love it. We're bringing some value to green cleaning just from the fact that, hey, we're just asking people to be thorough when they are doing it. I, I love it. So, so let's break this up into market sectors a little bit because green cleaning resonates with some better than others. Can you give us a couple and tell us why you know, green cleaning is better in this market than, than the other one? And maybe there's a target market for green cleaning as well. The way I often think about it is, you know, what are the drivers for people wanting to do it? And, you know, in some cases, you know, building owners have committed to things like lead. So they're sort of forced to doing green cleaning. But in other cases, they're doing it because of the occupants in their building and they really do want to create healthier buildings. So let's think about, well, what sectors are we really implying where it really does affect the occupants? So for example, if we create healthier environments so that the workers are more productive, they have less you know, eye irritation, less sinus irritation, less whatever it is, um, those places are things like an office building and obviously healthcare facilities and you know, other places where there are vulnerable people. 
On the other hand, if we look at retail, the people in a retail store, they're coming in and out every day. They're there for, frankly, in many retailers, they want them in and out as fast as we can get them as long as they buy a bunch of stuff, right? We're really not trying to keep them there for eight hours a day. So to really think about where are there places where the effects of a healthier building have a more bottom line impact on the employees who work for the people making the decisions about the cleaning programs. They're not too concerned about the person at the cashier in that retail store, but they may be really concerned about it in an office or in a school or in a daycare center or in a um, long-term care center or a hospital or places where the patients, the occupants are vulnerable so that we need to reduce VOCs. We need to take those extra precautions. And so that turns out to be who the early adopters are. It is those kind of folks. Commercial real estate is bought into it. Healthcare facilities have bought into it. Um, schools have bought into it. Retail, you know, not so much. Industrial, not so much. Not that it doesn't happen in those places, but there's less direct impact on the occupants to force them to just take the time to change, even if the change is cost neutral, because change is hard. So I got another question for you that pulls you into my world, and I think I know what your response will be. But um, a lot of folks pay a lot of attention to the off-gassing of finished materials in their facility. However, because I'm on the cleaning side, I'm very biased that maintenance or cleaning of that furnishing has a far greater impact on the immediate uh, environment than the off-gassing. Do you agree or, or disagree? Heck yes, I agree. Absolutely. You, you know, when I started really working with USGBC on their lead for new construction project, obviously there's a lot of interest in material selection. So there's a lot of concern about what carpets you buy. And when you buy a carpet, you know, you got to make sure you let them sit there and off gas for two or three weeks and then you install them. And on the adhesives and on the paints and the furniture and all this stuff, right? You know, that like when we buy a car, the new car smell, when we sort of realize actually that's not good stuff. When we smell that, that's bad. That's not good. That's actually bad. We don't want that. But as you pointed out, Typically, those materials, more than 90% off gas within the first three weeks of use, if not higher. Whereas those materials, you know, what's the average life of a carpet? Eight years, 10 years, right? We replace them because they get ugly. We don't really replace them because they wear out. But, you know, so people are getting rid of them eight or 10 years, whatever. But, you know, how often are we coming in and cleaning the carpet? Over that same eight or 10 year period, the amount of exposure from the materials we're bringing in every day, it turns out to be vastly more than the exposure caused from the off-gassing during the initial installation of the product. So I'm totally with you. This is something we just need to educate people about. And frankly, they get it. The designers get it when we explain this to them. And so it helps us develop better cleaning protocols. And certainly military folks are really good at helping make sure that carpets are maintained properly using methods that reduce exposures to workers 
obviously extending the life of the carpets, which are and stone floors as well. The other things that you guys may be doing, all of that really contributes not only to better, um, you know, reduce exposure to the occupants, but from a sustainability perspective by extending the life of those materials. I love that you brought in the education portion, because I do think that as we educate people on cleaning, right, like you said, it's well received with some of those designers, we will find those folks, hey, this will go a long way as far as green cleaning is concerned. So um, last question for you, um, and it's an open-ended one. What are some other projects, some cool projects that you're working on right now? Wow. So um, let me sort of do two buckets, if I can. And the two buckets, and if you'll allow me to elaborate a little bit on each one, that'd be cool. So the two buckets are sort of organizations that I'm working with that'll help us drive change because we can't do it ourselves. It really does take a team effort. And then I, the other bucket is some of the innovative technologies that we're looking at. So in terms of organizations that I'm excited about, my favorite one these days is tied to the Green Sports Alliance. I love sports. I'm a huge sports fan. I grew up in Indiana. I am a big basketball fan. I love sports. I love auto racing. I do. My significant other, Carrie, she loves horses. She does equestrian stuff. You know, sports are awesome. My friends, hunted and they fished and they were outdoors people and they get conservation. So I love sports stuff. But the thing that I actually like about sports is how do we drive change in our society, which is educating regular people, not just the tree huggers among us, but regular people about conservation issues and about the things that we've just been talking about, protecting health, protecting the environment, those things. Those are messages that really resonate with a lot of people, regardless of whether they're into sports or they're religious or political persuasion. But what's exciting about sports is who the messenger then becomes. And I hate to say it, you know, I appreciate how kind you were at the beginning introducing me, but the fact is there's a lot of people that would much rather hear about doing conservation efforts and using green products and, you know, what have you from LeBron James than Steve Ashkin. You know, so getting athletes as spokespeople to engage students and to engage fans, again, regardless of the politics that that person may have, we can unite around sports and around elite performance and what it takes to really be successful. So love sports and obviously to tie it in with schools because obviously high school sports is really exciting. So sports to me is really a great place to play. From an innovation perspective, there's a couple of things that I'm really interested in. And one is surface testing. Now we exist in an, in an environment where quality control, I'm not even sure what that means anymore. What that we sort of went in the room and we emptied the trash. You know, we just do our checklist, everything that the RFP required or what, right, what the contract required, did we do it? Yeah, but we don't really test whether it works. Um, as a little side note, you know, my son works at the manufacturing place that makes the Moderna vaccine. 
And so I love talking to him about the quality control stuff that they do. Everything. They measure everything. Everything is documented. Everything. And as you would expect, because if they screw up, they screw up a formulation. They, you know, they put the wrong stuff in the bottle. They put too much. They don't put enough in. It's contaminated. People could die, right? So we get it. But in our industry, we should at least be doing something, right? So now there's new test meters, objective methods by which we can make sure that cleaning is done effectively. You know, we need to, I, I wanna, please forgive me, I wanna say grow up, but that's probably not the right word, but we need to become more mature and take our industry more seriously, just like the manufacturer of Moderna does, or they, they do at healthcare. We can provide simple, inexpensive testing, yet is practical and cost-effective to help us really decide what we're cleaning, if we're cleaning thoroughly enough, if we're cleaning on the right frequencies, how do we really use the resources available to us to deliver the best outcomes? So I'm really excited about you know, working with these new ATP meters and some other technologies to objectively measure the quality of our cleaning. And by the way, I'm working to include those requirements in the next version of LEED. So look out for that. And then the other thing from an innovation perspective, I mean, there's robots I think are really cool and they're coming, right? They're coming. But things like uh, UVC. Um, I, I'm, I worry about the overuse of chemical disinfectants. I get the need for them. I get it. We got to keep our surfaces safe. But are there better technologies to keep those surfaces safe than using some of these chemicals that we know have health and environmental impacts, negative health and environmental impacts associated with them? Right? I mean, using chlorine bleach is a hundred plus year old technology. I mean, give me a break. I'm sorry. I get it. It works effectively. But the environmental concerns and just the toxicity of the product. And the fact that it, frankly, it is not a good cleaner. It's a good sanitizer, but it's not a good cleaner. Why are we still doing this? So can we use UVC? Can we use some of these other technologies that get us the results we want, but minimize the potential for harm to happen? So lots of interesting, innovative technologies out there. And so those are the two buckets of things that I'm really interested in. I appreciate your full answers today. And I think our, uh, our listeners do too, because there are so many initiatives going on in which cleaning companies can join in on kind of this green push. And you really helped us explore all those today. So again, thank you for helping us to explore the, uh, the great indoors with us. Well, Brian, it is really my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I wish you the best. I wish all of the folks listening in the best. Please, we really are saving people's lives. And even though we don't get lots of pats on the back, you know, that we're not often not acknowledged you know, like doctors. And, you know, today actually is that we're recording this as Nurses Appreciation Day. And I do appreciate them. I do. So while we may not get the same recognition and accolades, we know that we're saving lives and our work is incredibly important 
So the last thing I want to leave you and all the listeners with is thank you very much. You're appreciated. Your work is important. You are important. And please take care of yourself. But please also do a great job. Be an advocate. Be a professional that can tell people what they need to do. Because that's how we're going to get the results that we're all really looking for. Thanks so much, Steve. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate and subscribe. This podcast is an audio-only version of the Indoor Voices interview series presented by Millicare Floor and Textile Care. You can watch the video of this interview and find other episodes at millicare.com slash indoor voices.